Authentic relationships. We all want them and today we're going to learn a little bit of something about how to get them. This is a conversation that I had with my friend Christophanic about three years ago when we first got to know each other. Chris was kind enough to invite me on his podcast, Choice Conversations, and it's one of the resources that I've put out that I'm the most proud of. And this is one I still go back to listen to to this day to remind myself of some things that I think could benefit all of us since we all have relationships. I really hope you enjoy this Choice Conversation with my friend Chris Stefanik. Hello and welcome to Choice Conversations. I'm your host, Chris Stefanik. Today I'm speaking with Anthony Samaroff. He is a relationship trainer and communication coach. He has the YouTube channels Enrich Your Life One and The Progressive Parent. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Chris. It's nice to speak to you. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. So, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what was your journey to get to this point? You know, how did you end up going down such a path of being a relationship trainer and communication coach? Well, I guess I was always looking for that so some self knowledge and um, to understand why. And how I could make my life more enjoyable. I guess I wasn't really that happy growing up. I didn't understand why. And I stumbled on some books on parenting. And I guess it was part of being a political person and trying to change the world and make it a better place that I stumbled onto that stuff. And that sort of caught the scent of why. I might have not been that happy. Before I opened up those books, I really didn't think, I didn't really put two and two together, but it gave me a model. In fact, the first book I ever read on communication was a book on communicating with children called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And it was a real eye-opener for me because it was kind of a guidebook to a lot of the good communication that I really didn't get growing up myself. But that kind of went on the back burner for a while. I was trying to manage my wounds and actually become a happy person because I never for a second gave up. I always felt that sometime I'd figure it out. And through a series of processes, I started to become more happy. And the two things that really, really helped me were doing some inner child work and improving my communication skills because when I did that I started enjoying the company of the others around me much more I started getting much more fulfilling relationships and those were the things I wanted to bring and share with other people I kind of gone off politics because I didn't find myself effective I couldn't see the results of trying to convince people to think the same things as me in front of my eyes but when I taught people to improve their communication skills or empathized with them for some of the difficulties of their childhood, that was like instant results. So I led a series of workshops where people would come over to my house and I used the reflective listening skills that I had accrued to really help people open up and look at whatever was important for them, whether it was childhood wounds or things that were bothering them in the present. Sometimes I help people prepare to make appeals to other people for funding and things like that. A lot of getting people to talk about wounds that they often never spoken about before. And I try to always take the approach of listening and understanding and asking lots of questions and not giving too much advice. I would find that if you listened well, then they would come to a point where the other person would give you an indication that they were ready to receive. So I kind of developed my own three-step process of listening well and using reflective and active listening, then asking questions that would help the people expand their own thinking, and finally a third step, which would really just be a big question mark. I never knew what it was going to be. Maybe I would offer some advice or something from my own experience, or it could just be a hug. I just never knew what people would need until I really, really listened. And that's when I saw the value of becoming a, a really good reflective listener. And that's one thing I always try to kind of impress upon my clients 
take the time to learn to listen well, listen well before offering over anything from your own uh, packet of tools because people will be more receptive to using what you have to offer once they feel like they're in a position to really hear they've been heard well if they're in stress. So, yeah, from those workshops, I went on to doing more of the stuff that I'm doing now, which is more one-to-one work and trying to put out these videos to share all the information that I've learned over the last four years, largely, although the roots of what I'm doing go further back in the past than that. Everything on there aims to be practical. So every video should have something that you can actually apply in it. Um, I'm also trying to write some books at the moment, so we'll take it from here. Great, great. Yeah, that led to about a million follow-up questions for me. <laughs> I'll try to limit it to uh, a couple. So a couple of things you said stood out to me as being unique in my experience, or rare at least. The first one is you said that from early on you had this interest in self-knowledge. And in my experience, culture this cultural programming that's all around us, for the most part, it's trying to get you to not turn on self-knowledge, to not seek, you know, to not question anything and kind of just go along with the masses. So I'm curious, first question being would be, you know, what do you think led to that kind of bucking the system and, and not conforming and seeking self-knowledge and looking inward? What would that be? And then my second question is, you said while you were on this journey, you kind of started in politics and that wasn't satisfying because you you know were having difficulties convincing people to change their minds to your way of thinking for politics and that led you to communication books like how to talk so what is it i can't even think of the name so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk there you go there you go so i, I actually had adele faber one of the authors of that book the co-author of that book along with elaine maslish i had her on the show at one point, so as I, I believe the second podcast I did for Choice Conversations, wonderful. so very early on was a wonderful conversation, but my path kind of also went that way, although I started, I think, later in life than you, starting with politics, finding that unsatisfying, and then eventually getting around to parenting and communication, but there was many, many hops between that, for me at least, between that politics and getting around to how to listen so, so kids will talk. So how do you think it happened for you that politics led you in more of a direct step towards communication? Well, politics are interpersonal politics. If everyone knew how to manage the conflicts in their life successfully, then there would be no need for politics because people can solve the conflicts in their own life Mm. without shouting, swearing at each other, calling each other names, uh, using coercion or manipulation, they think that that's necessary. So when they see the politicians use coercive means to organise society, it kind of makes sense because it fits with the context of their own experience. So I feel like if everyone had really, really good, fulfilling relationships, then they'd look at politicians trying to use force and coercion and being very, very poor at solving conflicts with other countries. It would just look stupid. And I think, to me, what got me on the sort of self-knowledge track was probably that a lot of the world looked quite stupid. I mean, we don't need these things like war or locking people in cages with murderers and rapists for victimless crimes instead of trying to rehabilitate people. And a lot of it just, when you looked around, it was just like, we could, surely we could do a lot better than this. Surely we could do a lot better than this. But it became clear to me that if you wanted to change the world, that sort of you have to change yourself first thing um, really resonated with me. I mean, I did some things like going forest restoration projects because I was a staunch environmentalist and I wanted to put my hands to work. And it really made me think, whoa, if everyone did this instead of politics, even if people who dedicate their lives to campaigning politics spent half the time doing real things, like, you know, helping poor people instead of campaigning for poor people, then the world 
be a much better place. So I just thought eventually I had to take that one step further and say, well, what about my environment? What about my immediate environment? A lot of these things are very far away and they're not affecting me. If I can be of constant service to the people around me and model that, then I can help people a lot and they can learn things from me and use them to help all the people they know and gradually, gradually sort of change the world in that vein. Interesting. I also wanted the satisfaction of seeing the results of what I was doing. Because even if I changed someone's mind to vote for the same political party that I supported, supposing I had supported one, the only thing that would happen is they would change their vote. It wouldn't have a massive effect. Right, right. Yeah, the political system is really designed to take power away from people, in my, in my opinion. I read recently a, a great book from Howard Zinn. It's called The People's History of the United States. And he tried to give the, the history, instead of being written by the ruling elites, as most histories are written, looking at it from actually the people, looking at it from the, you know, the workers in the factories, the farmers in the fields, the soldiers out on the battlefield, and what was their story throughout the history. And he talks over and over in there of how politics were used by the ruling elites to take power away from people. You know, there would be these movements, like an example would be, there was a big, you know, communist movement and socialist movement in the United States in the, uh, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And that was something that would change the system and change the status quo and potentially take power away from the ruling elites. Of course, they didn't want that. So they shifted the argument and created this liberal movement where it was, it was in, a, in an effort to disarm the socialist movement and to get people to channel their energy into the ballot box and say, okay, we're going to take some of the terms that people use, the rhetoric from the socialist party, and add this to the liberal movement, but it's really not going to change anything. And there'll be maybe some surface changes that kind of look like we're addressing the things we're saying we're, talk, we're interested in, you know, some surface laws passed to address like some of this rhetoric to make it seem like it's not complete bullshit, but the status quo will not change. And in this way, we can diffuse that movement that had the potential to actually change something, for better or worse. I'm not by any means condoning socialism, but at any rate, that's beside the point. You know, the ruling elites literally like had this discussion, how can we do this? And they found this way to, okay, let's channel their energy in the ballot box. And Howard's in details in like four or five different times where there was a movement where people were really wanting to change something by taking action where they said, let's get them to channel their energy to just vote. Let's get their, their energy channel to just go into the ballot box and then be done. Yeah. Because there, we still control everything. We're still in control, and they can't really change anything if all they're doing is checking a box off. So let's make that what people should do. If you want to change, oh, go vote. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by anything you say at all. It seems I've heard of that book before. I've never got around to reading it. But even if half that energy that they spent campaigning for people to vote for whoever they think they should vote for at the ballot box was spent spreading the word on peaceful parenting and good communication, then we'd see a lot of change very quickly. Like, I believe that there's only so much value to criticizing a system, you want to create alternatives to that system so far as you can while that system exists. So everyone can look across and say, hey, look how well that's working, why aren't we doing that instead? People really want to see the results of things in their face. They're not so much convinced by people saying, oh, but it could be so much better if only, if only, if only. They want to see it work, and I really don't blame them. So it's really good to see what you can apply in your own life and try and be a model. Even if it's a microcosm, that's still some way, because if enough people copy your microcosm, then it becomes a macrocosm. Right, right. Yeah, and so speaking of being able to demonstrate the things you're proposing, how they are something that is desirable, how they're effective, as opposed to trying to change the system that you have no power to change. 
you had said to me earlier this week that when we recorded the show, you wanted to talk about authenticity in relationships. And why don't you tell me about what that means to you? What does authenticity in relationships mean to you and how you use that as an alternative to trying to change the current system, to introduce you know, a new paradigm to help you reach that happiness and connection with others? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of segueing into it, because if you look at politics, it's all about posturing. It's all about presenting yourself as a certain type of person. And if you think about it, you know, I I could take a, a, a really funny example. I mean, could you imagine someone like Tiger Woods coming out um, when he got busted for, I know he's not a politician, but he's a public figure for sleeping around, coming out and saying, you know what, I like shagging around and it's none of your business, it's between me and my wife. It would never happen. And it, there's a lot of that around politics of trying to be presented as squeaky clean. And politicians are told not to answer a question yes or no, to just simply rephrase what their position is in their own words. So you can't get a straight answer out of them. We had, what I wanted to talk about in terms of posturing was here in Scotland a few years ago, they passed a um, law which said anyone carrying caught carrying a knife would get a mandatory prison sentence that could go up to four years. Now, I can't think of a more stupid idea than putting, you know, 17, 18-year-olds in prison with murderers and rapists for carrying around a knife because they're going to get a great training in being a criminal while they're in there, probably get a lot of abuse and come out in a poor state of mental health and they're going to be doing this to them at a very, very high expense from the public purse. But would any politician turn around and say, um, no, no, this is a really stupid idea? Probably not, because it's about posturing. So they'd have to say, you know, we're tough on crime, we're tough on crime. And no one wants to be labelled soft on crime. So it's all about keeping up appearances. But so much of our life is, you know, at work you have to put on your work face. And when you go around to your parents' house, if you're not enjoying the conversation, for a lot of people, it's considered rude to say, you know, I'm kind of bored. Can we talk about something else? So we're kind of not really trained. And I think that's why it's so difficult for people to be authentic, because when they brought their authentic experience to the table growing up as children, they're quite likely attacked for just simply being who they are. So when you ask me, what does authenticity mean to me? I think it means bringing yourself into the relationship, yourself as you are, whatever you have to bring. You know, if you're confused, fine, come to me and talk to me about your confusion. I might not know any better than you do, but I know by the end of the conversation, we'll both know a lot better than we did before. If you're worried, bring that in. If you're happy, you bring that in. And the other side of it is allowing the other person to do the same. Bring whatever they're experiencing to the table and, you know, make a little alchemy. Those are the ingredients and the ingredients are never the same and you don't know what the result is. Every interaction is going to be fresh and going to be new because we're fresh and we're new every moment. So bring, bring, bring yourself to the experience and let the other person bring themselves to the experience and see what the result of the equation is. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful what you just said and moving to me to think about that, what that looks like in relationships. I'm reminded of the book Don't Be Nice, Be Real from Kelly Bryson. He's an NBC proponent who has a a lot of similar ideas in his work. And we're taught so much by culture, by, you know, the family system and, and everything else to be nice. Sure. Be a good little boy, be a good little girl, to sit on all these feelings, to sit on your needs. And we've learned that when we express our emotions, what typically happens is we get punished for that. So you don't allow your true self to be shown. You don't allow yourself to be authentic because of the experience that you had, you know, starting as a child. It gets ingrained into you and at, at home, at school pretty much everywhere you go that it's 
showing these emotions, I mean, even showing emotions that are considered positive, like joy and happiness, will often be squelched by parents, you know, that, oh, you're getting too excited about that, Johnny. You know, calm down, you know. So it's, it's not even just the negative emotions. And yeah. so, I mean, people, when you express emotion to others, and these others, I mean, almost invariably are people who are psychologically wounded, you know, it's, it's inevitable that the majority of people in the world, in our culture, are psychologically wounded because of the poor parenting skills that people have. But when you express emotion, especially strong emotion, these people that are psychologically wounded, they're triggered and their emotions rise and it becomes a very uncomfortable situation quickly. And so that's where that punishment comes in. They're like, please stop. I'm feeling pain. You expressing emotion, even positive emotion, is causing me to feel pain. This is what's going on subconsciously for them. They're not consciously thinking this. They lack the self-awareness for that. But like you expressing emotion is hurting me. Stop now. And that is just so prevalent. And it disables this authenticity that is just so wonderful if you can get there. And people find substitutes for authenticity as a defense from that. So you find that when someone does something that provokes an unpleasant emotional reaction in people, they're more likely to point the finger and blame the other person or make a remark about their character. Yes. It's so common to say, oh, you're so selfish, oh, you're so um, lazy, rather than I could really use some help around here. Because when you admit to having a feeling or a need, you make yourself vulnerable. And historically, the vulnerability people are afraid of being subjected to is someone turning around to them and saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way. And there is so much of that that goes around. You're wrong to feel what you feel. And one of the great benefits of having an authentic relationship is just being able to bring your feelings to it and investigate them. And let's just assume that no feeling is wrong. It's just a phenomenon. You know, it arises and you want to look at them. Because if people keep on telling you that your feelings are wrong, now you start getting worried that there's something wrong with you. And you can't suddenly change them. You can't click your fingers and suddenly feel something other than you're feeling. Now, it may be that you have a feeling that has been emotionally triggered, which seems inappropriate to the situation. But how is being told that your feeling's wrong going to help you in that situation? The only helpful response is a curious response both from yourself and anyone you're with, which is like, that's really interesting, you know. I wouldn't have expected you to be angry at that, or I wouldn't have expected myself to be angry at that. We have meta-emotions. We have emotions about emotions. I feel guilty that I'm angry, you know. And we need a space where we can look at ourselves, and it's good to have allies. Even if your emotion is, in inverted commas, dysfunctional, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for you to experience it. The only route to untangling that dysfunction would be an environment where it can be investigated. Hmm, that's interesting. What's underlying that? Right. Yeah, like you said, creating that space where there's not blame for emotions. And part of that, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering how can you implement this in your life, it, of course, starts with yourself, which is not blaming others or yourself for your emotions. So, like you said, if you're going to be authentic, one of the things you need to do is express how you're feeling. But you have to do that in a way where you're not putting the responsibility for that feeling on somebody else or else it's going to really trigger them. Chances are it's going to trigger them anyway, <laughs> but you're, you're really going to be destined to have a bad outcome if you're blaming the other person, putting the responsibility on them for what you're feeling. You know, Anthony, you made me angry. I can't believe you did that. That's not going to go anywhere good. You're better off just being nice 
and not being authentic at that point. So it was great to see. Um, you know, when you did that, I felt really angry, or I'm feeling really angry that you did that, and I'd like to talk about it. I mean, since I brought this stuff into my life, many times I've had a friend say, you know, can we go out for a pint and just went for a drink and said, I just wanted to bring up a couple of things. The other night, such and such happened. I wanted to talk about it. And I love that because that means that everyone's got my back and I don't need to worry or go around worrying that I've said something that's upset or offended someone. Because if I have done, they know they've got an open channel to tell me and we can discuss it and redefine our boundaries. I also try and strive to the same standard and not stew with negative emotions about people. Because who would want that? Who would want me to have been upset or angry with them for two weeks and not said a single thing? It's better to have it out in the open, have the discussion, and see what needs to progress from that. Sometimes nothing. Sometimes having the conversation is enough. And sometimes we want to... Um, renegotiate the boundaries and that's always going to be the case because no one lives in one another's heads but the great thing is once you have some success at this conflict is not scary anymore conflict's an opportunity to come closer together and for both parties to get more of what they want out of the relationship and enjoy the relationship more mm. yes yes each conflict is an opportunity to show that conflicts aren't enough to break the relationship. They're reaffirming how strong the relationship is because, look, it doesn't matter how many storms that come across, we can weather them. Yes. Each one just kind of reaffirms that, and bring, and because of that, it, it brings you closer. I'm so glad you said that because that is a critical point, and it's good to know that your ship can, your friendship can weather the storm. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Nice. <laughs> Oh. Um, sorry, half of your audience just dropped off after that joke. <laughs> so people try and manipulate other people instead of expressing their emotions, feelings and needs directly when they're worried that what they say won't be well received or, you know, they'll store up the resentment and they'll become passive aggressive because they don't really know if they've got the right to be angry. So instead they try and make the other person feel what they feel. And those, I guess what I'm trying to say about authenticity is you've got the right to ask for what you need and you've got the right to say what you feel. And the other person's got the right to negotiate with that and say, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I can't do it every week. So let's just or what, whatever it is, you know, make a negotiation and try and set up boundaries that are suitable for both people. And whenever unpleasant emotions arise, create a space where they can be spoken about. And it's really important to listen well to the other person and try not to interrupt them. Save up anything you've got to say until they're fully understood. That old maxim, seek to understand and then be understood. And everyone's got the right to that understanding. Don't go around calling the other person adjectives. I mean, there's no reason to call someone an adjective in a conflict situation. Selfish or lazy or stupid or inconsiderate or you you can communicate very well without ever calling the other person a name right right when you call somebody a name when you use a label it's a generalization and it's commonly a hasty generalization which for those of you that are fans of logic is one of the common fallacies that are out there so it's very easy to dismiss it, and that's why it's it's just so ineffective, because yeah. if you say somebody's lazy, they can just say, well, that's not true. I just worked hard this morning at, you know, breaking leaves. I'm not lazy. Because it's a hasty generalization, it's not very accurate, and, it, and therefore it and tends to be not very effective. What's more effective is increasing your accuracy by saying observations. NBC, Nonviolent Communication, from Marsha Rosenberg, he talks about this all the time not using those labels, not diagnosing the other person, but instead use an observation. So instead of calling someone lazy, which is not that accurate, what you could say is, you know, I see that you didn't pick up the, your things last night when, you know, you got home from work. That is a true statement. 
or you could add to that from there. Didn't we talk about this, you know, last week that you would pick your things up or whatnot? But if you can avoid those adjectives, it's certainly more effective in my experience. Absolutely. And see, the, one of the reasons why is as soon as you throw in one of those hand grenades, the conversation gets derailed. I'm assuming that when you call someone lazy, you're trying to change one of their behaviors so that you will enjoy spending time more with them because they're doing something that provokes an unpleasant emotion in you. What ends up happening instead of discussing how you can both behave in ways that suit one another, you start debating whether they are lazy or not. Yeah. So they'll come to you with all these examples of when they aren't lazy, or they'll say, no, you're the lazy one, and you'll start thinking <laughs> whether you're lazy or not, and you'll start giving them examples. When what you really want to be doing is, you know, one of two things, which is, pointing out the things that they've not done that you would like some help with and appealing to their better nature and asking them to help you out. Or have a bit of empathy and say, you know, I've noticed that you've not been working on your book over the last couple of weeks. You said you wanted to get it finished by next month and you're really close. I'm wondering what's going on with you with that. Is Are there any reasons why it's difficult for you to do it? Are there any reasons why you didn't do the dishes last night? Are there any reasons why you didn't hoover? Because, um, you know, I, we're both busy. Um, these are the tasks that I agreed to do. And you agreed to do these tasks and it makes it's very difficult for me when you don't do your share, and it also makes me feel resentful, and I don't like resenting you. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. That's a much better approach than just saying they're lazy, which <laughs> which I think that when somebody says you're, you're lazy, that's an attempt by them to get you to self-attack. Right. Maybe not at the conscious level, but at the subconscious level, they're saying self-attack. Yeah, but we don't want to have to self-attack to change our behavior. Sure. Sometimes self-attacking changes our behavior, but it would be much more liberating if we could just choose what we want to do and do it. And I feel like because we sometimes self-attack for not doing something or we'll self-attack, you know, right, say I want to work on an article and I'm worried that it'll be difficult to write. When I'm writing it, then perhaps I'm self-attacking. Uh, and that, uh, oh, it's not good enough, I'm, I'm, it's never going to be perfect, blah, blah, blah. So I'm avoiding writing the article to avoid self-attacking, and then I start self-attacking for avoiding it. And you're you're kind of in a double bind there. So, yeah, I, I feel like we don't want to punish ourselves into changing, and we don't want to punish other people into changing, because when you do that, even if they do change, they'll never do it with a smile on their face and they'll chalk it up and they'll have expectations of what you should do now since they were so kind and so gracious as to change for you. Sure, sure. You're in that scenario talking about win-lose scenarios, which, like you said, they're going to hold that against you or hold you accountable or that's going to be in the back of their head somewhere making it a lose-lose scenario. You know, they say there really aren't win-lose scenarios. They're they're all lose-lose because even if you win, you lose because of the effects of that winning on the person who lost. We were talking about the self-attack. It reminded me of early on in the discussion, you had talked about your inner child and getting in touch with that and healing your, your inner child. So when I think of self-attack and punishing ourselves because we should have done something. We did something wrong. We were bad. That screams of, okay, that's an internalization of our parents. When we were young, we were told, you should do this. If you don't do what you should do, you're bad. Or if you do what you should do, you're a good little boy, too. It's uh, two sides of the same coin. The should and should not, good and bad, right and wrong. And as your people are parenting you in this way during your formative years... You internalize this. You internalize these people in your environment. You have an internal mother, an internal father. You have an internal child who can be triggered by these things that occur. Uh-oh, you can't get angry because you know what happens if you get angry. So at any rate, what is your experience with the self-knowledge work you've done and your inner child and these internalizations of your surroundings? And how does that tie into what we're talking about now? Well, I mean... 
Yeah, uh, I know, I just I, dropped the bomb in the conversation, sorry. but <laughs> That's a great question. One of the great things about learning good communication skills is that you learn a yardstick to measure the way you communicate with yourself by as well. So you'll notice more the way you speak to yourself. One of the first victories of self-knowledge I won was like three or four years ago when I vastly decreased the amount of self-criticism that went on in my head. I had a very, very self-critical parent and I still sometimes, sorry, a very, probably very self-critical as well, although that parent wouldn't necessarily admit it, but certainly very, very critical of everyone else. And she invited attack. And it's funny because, you know, she probably invited, invites attack because when she was a little girl, she got a lot of that kind of attack. And she wants, she wants to stay in what's familiar. You know, it's Freudian repetition compulsion. So I had that voice in my head as well. And by noticing it, there it goes again, but also by by learning good communication skills, it gave me a basis for trying to reprogram that voice. I just like to say that if you have a problem with self-criticism, every time it comes up, and don't self-criticize yourself for self-criticizing, just watch it and be like, oh, there it goes again. Like a tape playing, like a tape playing in your head. Oh, there it is again. And that way you're not so identified by it. And the more you notice it, the less it'll come up. Also, go to my channel, check out some of the resources on improving communication, and they'll give you a yardstick to measure the way you communicate with yourself by. And you're going to communicate with other people. In, in, in a way, you're, you're limited to the, the tools you have available for speaking to yourself and your communication with other people. Improving your communication with other people will also help you communicate better with yourself, I've found. Having a support network around is probably not sufficient, but it's helpful. Right, right. Like I had mentioned, NVC is a tool that I've found to be extremely useful. I'm a fan as well. Sure. And I've heard of a lot of horror stories. It's probably too, sh- too harsh of a way of putting it, but failed attempts, I guess. I've heard of a lot of failed attempts, and I've had some failed initial attempts myself where when people start with NVC, the first thing they try to do is externally using NBC with how they talk to others. And they find when they're using this NBC externally, it's failing. And the reason is internally, they're not using it. They're still using what Marshall Rosenberg would call jackal speak. Where NBC really has its greatest strength is applying it internally and in how you speak to yourself. And even if you never speak it externally to another person, if you just change how you speak to yourself and use NBC, which is a language that removes blame, there are no shoulds you should have or you should not have if you're speaking NBC. If you remove that blame and that criticism and how you speak to yourself, it will dramatically change the quality of your life and your emotional equilibrium and the amount of happiness in your life. Yeah, Marshall Rosenberg says something wonderful that I always quote, which is, we don't have to be perfect, we just need to get progressively less stupid. And I think that's a great motto to live by. If you're always comparing yourself to your perfect standards, you'll always fall short. But if you're trying to get better and you always compare yourself to how you were, you'll always feel encouraged because we're always expanding in our consciousness. Some people less, some people more, but you're always expanding in your experience. So how can your consciousness not become, be becoming more broad? And it's, well, it's good to start with safe people. Practice your communication skills with safe people and get better at it. And then you'll have more success with people who are more difficult to deal with. And, you know, you took your example of people who had failure stories speaking NBC with people And, you know, that's okay, too, because if they hadn't given it their best shot and tried to communicate as well as possible, they maybe would have come away saying, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, I was a really poor communicator, maybe that's why they attacked me. But if they really did the work and they approached someone and 
tried to communicate really well, didn't call them any names, didn't shout at them, didn't swear at them, removed blame, at least in the moment, when they were broaching the subject, and that person still attacked them, then that's a good measure that they can decide whether they want that person in their life or not by. Right. Sometimes they might decide not, but at least they'll know that they gave it their best shot. And that way, when that person turns around and maybe tries to lay on guilt or shame to try and get them to reassociate, it won't be as effective because they'll know they tried their best. Right. Yeah, I think one of the beautiful things that comes out of what these things we're talking about, improving our communication skills, both with ourselves and with others, improving our self-knowledge, one of the big benefits from it is it gets you choices. That's how I came up you know, partially with the double meaning of the, the show, Choice Conversations. It's about giving yourself choices. And one of those choices is, what is my environment? Who am I surrounding myself with? And a lot of people haven't made that a choice. A lot of people have just accepted certain people to be their surroundings, to be in their circle, and haven't evaluated, is this person, you know, enabling me to be a better person or a worse person? You know, is am I a better person when I'm around this this particular individual, or am I a worse person? Probably the you know the single biggest, most important choices you make in your life is who do you decide to, to let be around you? Absolutely. And that's going to have huge effects. So, and if you uh, you surround yourself with people who, when you're with them, you communicate better with them, with yourself, you're a better person. You're uh, better is probably not the word I want. <laughs> that, that's, that implies that, you know, right or wrong, but you're more effective at meeting your goals, at meeting your your needs and meeting the needs of the other person. There's a synergy there when you're with this person. With another person, it's not saying that they're bad. It's just, you know what, when I'm with you, I'm not who I want to be. Yeah. Another term that you introduced, which I really like, is that having boundaries. And this can help you to develop some boundaries and say, okay, what certain behavior is going to be acceptable for me to have in an associate, in a friend, in a close friend, and to really think about that. And most people haven't actually made explicit declarations, whether internally or or externally, of what are my boundaries. And so if somebody comes in and is behaving in a way that's not very life-enriching, they don't necessarily know what to do. They might have these negative emotions, negative is probably not a good term because all, all emotions, like we were saying earlier, were, are useful. It's just uh, some, are, some make us feel happy or, or well and, and some make us uncomfortable. Yeah, and you want to take notice of those because those unpleasant emotions are there to tell you that something needs to be changed. So many people get into a relationship and then they'll say, oh, well, you know, every marriage has its problems. Whereas that's a cop-out, because you could actually both be doing some work to improve the relationship. Oh, all, all parents share each other, all parents share their kids. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. If everyone isn't really enjoying the anger and the shouting, then um, you could find other ways to communicate. So, yeah, those unpleasant emotions are very useful as long as you heed them to as a call to take action. Yes, Absolutely. Emotions are extremely powerful indicators that your needs are either being met or not met, and therefore they are useful. I mean, they're much faster and more efficient than the conscious mind. Emotions are coming from the subconscious. But as, you know, people have talked about the subconscious is, uh, I don't know, thousands of times faster than the conscious mind. It can perform these calculations, and so it can weigh all the variables in your life and take in all the data that you've observed and make this calculation to say, okay, this isn't helping me get to where I want to be. This is not a life-enriching activity. And it, it can tell you that right away. Gee, I'm getting a little frustrated right now, and I'm not sure why, but your subconscious knows it's because your needs are getting met. You know, So that will help you to say, well, be a good boy and don't get angry, or you should squash that frustration and put on a smiley face. You're really taking a, a tremendous tool out of your toolbox, and you're sitting on your needs at that point. Yeah. Well, I think you, what, what you were saying there ties into uh, what you were saying a little earlier about choosing who's in your environment, because I think what they 
bring together is, well, I'm going to suggest a hypothesis and your listeners and you and I can maybe test this out and bring it back to our, and get in touch and say whether you think this is true or not. I'm going to suppose that the people that you feel really good about having in your environment are those people you feel authentic around and the people that you don't enjoy having in your environment are those that you don't. And that's a hypothesis that you can test. Um, we, we all have our own experience of it, and maybe we can bring together and see if that's, that is true or not in your experience. I'd suggest that when people find it difficult to be authentic and bring the reality of their experience to the relationship, notice it. Notice every time you find it difficult to be honest. And often, it's appropriate to say it and say, do you know what, give me a second because I'm feeling a bit anxious at the moment, if you're brave enough to do it, and work through the anxiety that's provoked by a challenge of being honest, by a challenge of being authentic, and see if you can say what's on your mind or not. And that that will gradually, gradually, gradually break down your resistance to being authentic. Hmm. I really like that. I'm going to have to think about that in my relationships going forward and test that out. And if you can't do it right away, it's not the end of the world. Like, we, you know, at least you notice that you found it difficult and maybe later in the evening you'll be able to tell them or in two days' time, you'll phone them up and say, do you know what, I had an interesting experience the other day when we were together. You said so-and-so, and I wanted to tell you how I felt, but I actually felt quite a bit nervous. I've worked through it since then, and I came to this conclusion. Whatever, you know, challenge yourself. Challenge yourself when you find it difficult, because amazing things will start happening, I think. I mean, in my experience, it has. Maybe I was just lucky. When I started increasing the honesty and intimacy levels of my friendships a lot of my friends jumped on board with me and very quickly changed it was like all right we're doing this new increased honesty thing and came with me maybe i was just lucky but i think awesome things start happening and one of them which is a sequitur from this is an opportunity to explore these things oh that's interesting what did you learn you know, why were you nervous? Why do you think you were nervous? Was it something to do with your childhood? Were you worried I'd attack you? Uh, you know, a chance to talk. Another thing is you attract high-quality people who are hungry for this stuff and have been starved for it and have wanted to have the kind of relationships where they could be open and honest and hear other people being honest. And you'll scare away people who can't handle it. They'll just be like, oh, that person's a bit intense. But, you know, that's their choice. Mm. And another thing is, you, if people are going to be honest with you, you're going to have access to more accurate and useful mirrors, people who can actually tell you how you're perceived, because there's that old expression that everyone has a back. <laughs> and, you know, we can't always see how we're perceived. So it's really useful to have people there to tell you if there's anything that you did which might have rubbed people up the wrong way or portrayed you as less praiseworthy than you may be or or anything or 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 point out things that go to your credit that you might not have noticed so you can own them you've got people to bounce your experiences off of and there's no need to go alone and you can make use of other people's expertise when you're no longer scared to talk through what's going on for you in case people interrupt you or find it too intense or jump in to offer you unsolicited advice. They're willing to listen to you and uh, they, they're not going to put shame on you for what you're experiencing. They're giving you a space to explore it and maybe they've got some more experience that they can share with you. And it all goes into the pot. This is my advert for authentic relationships here, Chris. Right, right. More opportunities for self-knowledge, more touching moments when you share, you know, when you get really close together and you say to someone thank you when actually they're, they feel grateful to you for sharing a part of yourself with them or vice versa. Those are really touching moments. 
so we can reprogram our expectations and strive for something more and get more out of our relationships with other people. Right. Yeah, so when you talk about people giving you that feedback, if I have spinach stuck in my teeth, Hmm. I want the person to tell me that. I don't want to sit through the whole dinner with this big green spinach stuck in my teeth and they don't say a word. And you go to the bath, you know, it's like you haven't had spinach for an hour. You go to the bathroom and you're like, oh my gosh, this has been in my teeth the whole time and they never said anything, (laughs) you know. But having that, somebody that can let you know what you appear, yeah, that's very useful to help you to present yourself how you want to be presented. Your knowledge is limited by the fact that you're only you. You know, you don't have the perspective of other people unless they give it to you, unless they share it with you. And that's not going to happen unless you have authentic relationships. And one of the many, many benefits of of having that. So, well, Anthony, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And I really enjoyed speaking to you at home. So thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, the podcast which is dedicated to giving you practical tools for raising your life to its maximum potential in all areas. If you would like to hear more from Chris, you can find him at choiceconversations.com. He is an excellent podcast host and interviewer. And he's got a lot of great episodes on his podcast. Now, personal development can involve a lot of stumbling around in the dark, looking for answers, a lot of trial and error. So I created a course to help you through all sorts of blocks that you might be having in your personal development process, one step at a time. My course is designed to give you the right information in the right order so you can apply it to your own circumstances and see excellent results in a short period of time. You can find it at beyourselfandloveit.com under the course tab. It would also help to support the show so that I can put out lots of delicious free content and it might well save you a clear decade of reading self-help books and watching YouTube videos. Please subscribe to this show on iTunes or SoundCloud so that you know when I put out the next episode. Until then, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.